internet! You're listening to episode 8 of Open Paren, a podcast about librarians and code. You can catch the complete show notes, including links to whatever we end up talking today, talking about today at my shiny new vanity URL, openparen.club, where you can also suggest guests and catch up on previous shows. Thanks for listening. Today, we are talking to Becky Yost, the library, library Applications and Systems Manager at the Seattle Public Library. Uh, she's also active in a whole lot of library and related communities, which we will probably end up mentioning at some point, and certainly we'll have links to on the show page. Uh, and she has a hat. <laughs> I have one of many hats. It's true. This is a different hat than your previous like go-to hat. Yes. So for those of you who are not familiar with the go-to hat, let me see if I can wrangle this one. <laughs> I think it started in like 2009, 2010 when this hat made its appearance. So what happens when you're a five foot four librarian, white lady librarian, and you need to make yourself distinguishable throughout the uh, crowd. You wear a really big hat. <laughs> so this hat has lasted me over eight years so far. But since I've moved to Seattle, this is the Welcome to Seattle hat. It is a Finnish Civil War hat from the 1930s. This hat is not a fedora. This hat is a fedora. Notice the shorter brim. <laughs> this hat is an outback hat. It's an it's basically an Australian hat. So for those of you who are wondering, not a cowboy hat, not a fedora, not the Indiana Jones hat, Australian hat. I forgot the exact term, but <laughs> I admit I had always wondered if there was like a hat story, but I had assumed it was sort of like a secret deep dark thing that you could tell me, but then you'd have to kill me. Yes, that's after we're done with the broadcast. All right, coolio. Uh, so anyway, I, I mentioned at the beginning that you're involved in a whole bunch of different librarian communities and librarian-related communities. And I think I actually want to ask first about the most library tangential of those, which is Write the Docs. Um, I'm curious if you can give like an overview of that for people who aren't familiar with it, and then like, why did you get into that? All right, so I think my love for documentation was the reason why I got into the Write the Docs community. And I believe it was around the first conference in 2013, I think, around 2013, 2014. I learned about Write the Docs existence by, uh, I saw a couple tweets coming in from a couple of the presentations being streamed and some slide decks that came out. Now, the reason why I like documentation is because my catalogers, on my cataloger side, we deal with documentation all the time in terms of dealing with standards and dealing with local practices. My work in library world was focused primarily on workflow analysis. And when you're doing workflow analysis, if you don't have anything documented, well, that's a, that's a huge problem. So seeing this documentation talk and everyone just geeking out about how to not only create documentation, but the philosophy behind documentation, uh, the tools to make documentation, uh, how documentation, and this comes later on in later presentations in later years, 
documentation as hospitality. And as you said, I do a lot of work with a lot of different communities. And a lot of my work does center quite a bit around hospitality in terms of making sure that folks can enter in a particular community with the lowest bar possible that either I can do personally or I can build into the community um, systematically or persuade others or bribe others um, to, in, to make a more inclusive community. So when I saw Write the Docs um, presentations and whatnot, I started geeking out, of course. And then when Code for Lib at its 10th anniversary came to Portland, Write the Docs, there are all their North American conferences thus far have been in Portland. And so since I was still on my pre-conference kick and streak trying to uh, keep up organizing pre-conferences for Code for Lib, I reached out to the Write the Docs organizers and asked, hey, would you like to co-present co a pre-conference, either be it an on-conference or a workshop or whatever you feel like would be best for the community? And one of the co-founders, Eric, uh, has a has uh, just latched on to getting the librarian community and getting LibTech and getting just librarians in general involved in the documentation community, um, partially because of the whole organization of information aspect that we bring into this. Um, mm -hmm. Because your documentation is worthless if it's not findable. Mm -hmm. So metadata, ontologies, taxonomies, and so on. And once I uh, got the pre-conference organized, I got more librarians interested. So in a better world, I would now be able to ask you simultaneously about documentation, hospitality, and bribery, because I know you have things to say about Pi, uh, but I can't <laughs> actually like bifurcate the quantum states of reality that way. Um, so I think I'd like to ask first, since you mentioned that Write the Docs would love to have librarians, how can librarians get involved? And second, as I was just trying to write myself some documentation this morning and realizing that I didn't know how to organize it, you have a couple like quick top suggestions for how to write less terrible documentation. Uh, it's, so I'm going to answer the second question first. I believe documentation, writing documentation, just writing less bad documentation, <laughs> it's like trying to write less bad code. It takes a lot of practice, and in six months' time, when you look at your documentation or code or your cataloging record, same thing with cataloging, you're going to look at this and you're going to say, oh, that was complete crap, <laughs> and then redo it. Mm -hmm. uh, so a couple of suggestions, a couple quick suggestions. You need to keep in mind who you're writing the documentation for. In usability, um, yeah, in, in usability studies and whatnot, when you're doing usability work for your websites, one popular way of contextualizing the work that you do for your user interface is creating personas. Who are you writing this documentation for? Are you writing for the developers who have um, a assumed core of knowledge and skills about the stack of the particular application that you're writing for? 
are you writing for the application ma managers, those who are not system admins or not, you know, taking care of the servers, taking care of the code, but they're administrating the site. So for example, a digital repository, you have the developer and you have the sysadmin, but you also have the person who's um, configuring the settings for both the internal users and the external users. So site administration. Or are you creating documentation for the end user themselves? Um, and that's a wide range of skill sets and knowledge that you're better off not assuming very much. Um, one way that you can um, make your docs fairly inclusive to a whole range of skill sets and knowledge is writing user journeys, approaching documentation as storytelling. And that's been a popular topic with um, what I've seen out write the doc conversations. There's a couple of write the doc presentations from 2015 that approach documentation as storytelling. One actually compared it to role playing. That was a really good presentation. I can't remember the name off the top of my head. But uh, keep in mind your audience and adjust your documentation as necessary. Um, and the second thing I would say is just get into the habit of documenting. Don't leave it to a dump because if you leave it to a dump, if that's not how you work, then you're not going to do it. You have to make it priority. That means you might have to drop something, th something else off. But in the scheme of things, you only have limited resources. You only have limited time. And what you make priority is reflective to what your organization and what yourself um, value. So if you're just working on the code or you're working on the workflow just to make that work and not have any documentation out there, well, you're leaving your future self, you're leaving those who are not within that particular snapshot of time um, out in the cold. So you're not building for sustainability, you're building for the now. There's no, there's no future planning, there's no long range thinking if you're not doing documentation. Now, as for librarians getting into Write the Docs, I would highly recommend visiting the Write the Docs website and on meetup.com, um, there should be a link to uh, uh, meetup.com or some sort of uh, link to the various different region, regional Write the Doc groups, local Write the Doc groups. I would highly recommend attending one of the local Write the Doc groups. It's sort of like Code for Libs local and regional groups. Less or you know less formal, just people getting together. There might be some presentations. There might just be a group therapy session about people not getting documentation. <laughs> Why documentation is important? It's interesting. I'm going to go on a tangent here. It's interesting seeing because I've only been involved with Write the Docs since around late 2014 on. So it's been about a year and a half, and they had about three year, about two to three years to start up 
before I got there. It's interesting to see the parallels between Code for Live and Write the Docs in terms of organization and in growth. Because we're, they're right now having the same conversations about how do we handle the explosion of interest that they're finding not only from technical documentarians, but from developers, from managers, from us folk, mm -hmm. and you know, information workers and other people that, you know, at first might have not been directly involved with Write the Docs, but they see the value in documentation and believing in a community surrounding documentation. So it's interesting to hear these conversations and seeing some of the parallels that happened with CodeFlip during the years of, you know, the growing pains. Mm -hmm. So as an outsider, yeah, that's been, that's been interesting. <laughs> Are they finding any interesting solutions to that problem? Um, at the point they're at CAP at the North American conference, mm -hmm. they also have a European conference. And there's, there's some overlap between those two in terms of attendance. There's been some talk about spinning off a second North American conference. I have not heard anything beyond talk though, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't be surprised if there was a spinoff conference. Would that be something with like a different focus or just have it be in a different part of the country? So different, a different part of the level? country. Yeah. I guess if you, yeah, if you're consistently in Portland, then I can see why having a conference in Chicago or Boston or something might. Uh, yeah. Might East coast, <laughs> the East coasters are, are, are wanting something close to the home. It is a somewhat long plane flight. I have to tell you. <laughs> but you get blue star donuts. Yes, and I, I prioritized that last time I went to Portland, and I got some just before getting on my red-eye home and put them on the table for my daughter before I collapsed in bed again. So now she wants to go to Portland because donuts. Donuts. Um, but it's a pretty long flight. <laughs> um, anyway, I was, I was also curious because it, you were talking about documentation as long range planning, which, you know, as a developer who has seen past me's code and been like, what were you thinking? Um, and had to uh, experience paying down technical debt. I, I can appreciate that. Um, but uh, that was also interesting to me because uh, I know that you are, have been moving into more and more managerial roles. And so that's, that mm -hmm. seems like a very managery thing to say. So I, I'm curious, like, how, how has your... How, how have, you, have your like perspectives or uh, interests changed as you do that sort of dev to IT manager kind of journey? Uh, dev to IT manager. Well, if you're a masochist, it's a great <laughs> path to go on. So when you're a dev, the thing that you want to do is to create, is to just make sure things are efficient as possible. Make sure that you have right, you know, code that actually works. <laughs> um, you don't want to deal with the politics, and there's and there's a lot of work politics that goes on either within your team or within the department or across between departments, and then outside even if you're working on open source projects. Um, so moving into a managerial position, this forces one to step outside of the service model of we have to have it right away. So sort of the agile, where I'm coming from, the agile iterative, you know, 
release it out there and then release it again, fix any bugs, release again, fix any bugs, just making it fast and deliverable. And then coming to a managerial position where you have to do some of the politicking for your staff so your staff can focus on what they do best. And if your staff, if there's one or two people that can that wants to go ahead and think the 30,000 level view, if they want to go through project management and determine which projects would impact the organization um, on more levels than other projects. So you have you have to balance how many how much resources does a project take versus the impact that will have um, overall. So if you have a particular project that takes a lot of resources, that takes up a lot of your dev's time, your dev has to learn a new um, library or if they have to learn a new framework or develop some sort of skill. And if that particular project is not only going to be low impact, but it's only going to be used, you know, for a very short period of time, well, I might as well have the dev work on something else that will be much more worth not only their time, which will make sure that they feel like they're accomplishing something, <laughs> <laughs> but also that is beneficial for the organization. So you have, uh, you know, you have to um, take the knowledge that you have, being the, you know, being ground level, and take the experiences that you had with particular users and particular situations. And when you become a manager, you have to use that experience and your experience with your team that you've had with others, you know, being the trenches. And you can't lose sight of that because a good number of managers will just take the 30,000 level foot level view and just you know, prioritize whoever they want to prioritize and will not keep in mind that their decisions and their interactions with other managers within the organization externally with vendors, with other libraries, with other organizations affects the team in terms of morale, in terms of um, agency in terms of just giving them just just in the way that they feel that they can do their jobs without having a particular manager either be micromanaging or just leaving them out in the field <laughs> um, yeah so I'm curious about one of your phrasings earlier, you said something like a project where a developer would have to learn a new library. Um, but a lot of people approach things with this would, I would get to learn a new yes. tech, right? So it's it's like what I saw writing my library technology report about librarians who code is that, you know, the amount of managerial support for professional development for library coders varies enormously. Yeah. And you know, as, as someone who codes myself, I'm I'm really sort of sensitive to the the balance between like, it's so easy for me to reach to Django to do things because I'm so much better at it than anything else. But at the same time, 
you know, not making more time to learn new things is, is slowly getting me behind in other areas, right? Yeah. So like, how, how do you strike that professional development balance for, you know, sometimes, sometimes you don't have time for new things, but sometimes learning mm -hmm. that new library is like a love letter to your future self. Oh yeah, um, it's it's one of those things. When I was talking about that particular situation, is just um, force marching your staff person to learn a particular um, mm -hmm. framework, even if they don't want to learn it. Mm -hmm. um, so striking that balance is going to evolve the staff member. The staff member needs to be in these conversations about which projects. Um, you're looking at and how these projects can be tackled. So if you know a particular person, if a particular staff member has been looking into getting into, let's say, jQuery, I have a staff member who wants to get learn a little bit more about JavaScript and jQuery. Well, if I have low-hanging fruit projects, I'm going to shove those her way because she has indicated, I've asked her, you know, what would you like to learn? And this should be an ongoing conversation. A lot of managers don't ask this, don't ask their staff what they want to learn frequently enough. They wait for the annual review. And that is a fatal flaw. If you want to lose good staff, <laughs> don't ask them what they want to learn or how you would support or support them in ways that they want to be supported in professional development. So striking that balance there, again, this is with the priorities and impacts. Um, if it's going to be a monstrosity of a project where it's a totally foreign base of, no, totally foreign stack. Mm -hmm. Um, there are ways that you can deconstruct the project where you can make it into, you know, smaller bits. So you don't end up sucking all the resources into this one project while neglecting everything else. Or it might be that you have to do smaller projects before you hit that major project. But in all, as a manager, my responsibility ultimately is making sure that my employees, my staff have the tools that they need to best approach a project at that point in time. And this might be, this might mean that we might go down one path and then check in and say, okay, maybe we have the wrong framework. Maybe we have the long, wrong library, or maybe we're just approaching how we're developing this thing in a way that is not sustainable. This is where you have to cut your losses and then just go the other direction. The sunk cost fallacy, as many <laughs> people charge through, it's like, well, you know what? Screw it. We're just going to charge through anyway. That's going to cost more at the end. Mm -hmm. So as a manager, as you said, um, managers need to be able to give staff the permission. It's almost like, yeah, it is essentially the permission to learn. But at the same time, we have to be cognizant of the resources that are being um, utilized in these projects where, yeah, it's going to be slower because the person is learning a new skill. 
Yeah, it's very reminiscent of um, like software architecture, which seems to me to be largely about managing complexity, right? Accepting yep. the fact that the the system you are building has complexity that far exceeds what a human can actually fit in their head. And so the the sort of craft tools that you need to use to attack it are all about how do I make sure that like the bit of the elephant I am looking at right now is encompassable within the, the like limits of my brain. Yep. And uh, if you're familiar with Conway's law, the structure of your software is going to reflect the structure of your organization or the structure <laughs> of the culture of your organization. Mm -hmm. So there is also that. Um, but the thing with projects is that, and this is uh, Rosie Metz introduced me to the concept of product maintenance. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of projects turn into products. Mm -hmm. And when you get into a particular situation where you have a you know, done deal, your project's done, who's going to take care of that particular product? It's another mouth to feed. Mm -hmm. And again, that has to be balanced within which projects you take on. But also the way that you go about project in a sense that the product that is produced is not a one function product. So seeing if you can tweak the product that can be used, you know, half anticipating future projects, but also seeing ways that can help existing services mm. and workflows. Yeah, I can see that sort of keep the keep the cost down by making it a thing that can be folded into existing commitments it's you, you either have the swiss army knife or you just have the knife so <laughs> just the swiss army knife even though there's a variety of different um tools that could be you know your one you know one type of use you can you can use multi-tools for a variety of different things and this is what i want a product to look like I want a product that is versatile and can be used in more than one type of situation. And then as a manager, your job is juggling knives? Yes. <laughs> knives, torches, making, taking shots, you know, all this good stuff. My job as a manager is to deflect all, you know, deflect all the knives from my staff. No, it's just... <laughs> so... Determine it. It depends on what level of management you are. I am middle management. I am not high enough to be despised, but not low enough to be totally without power in the organizational structure. <laughs> this is the most subversive of positions in an organizational structure. But yes, as a manager, um, yeah, I mean, that's the way I approach management. I. There is a difference between management and leadership, and I do want to point that out. Leadership, you have the inspiration, you have the vision. These people can figure out the strategic path of where an organization can go. Managers realize that vision. They realize that strategic plan. And at this particular moment, I am doing my best to realize the um, this particular strategic plan that SPL has, I'm 
thinking, I can't remember the exact name. Uh, I believe it's the service impact or service, service points, and we got five of them. And one of them is technology and access. Now, technology and access means something a little bit different when you're in academia versus when, when you're in public. So academia, my focus in academia has been creating access to materials that would benefit. So you have a sort of a tier set of library users in academia. Your tier set includes your faculty, your students, those who need the resources to either teach the classes, do their research, do their scholarship, um, take the classes, do their, if your students or do your projects and whatnot. Then you have community members and then you have other people, other researchers outside of the university who wants to make use of your particular resources, including local resources, history, archives, special collections, and whatnot. Public libraries, and this is just me being five months in into a technology position at a public library. There are so many different user groups that you have to keep in mind because there is no obvious hierarchy. The only hierarchy that you might have, depending on who you talk to, is residents versus non-residents. Mm -hmm. If you got someone who wants to point out who's paying for the library. Mm -hmm. So you have your right collar workers, you have your construction workers, you have your um, first generation immigrants, you have English as second language, you have people who don't know how to read, who might not have good English reading skills or speaking skills at that matter. Um, you have the millionaires, you have the homeless, you have people who are able-bodied, you have people with disabilities, you have people with children, no children. I mean, it's just, when you look at what services you provide, you want to look at services that either reach the majority of your users or if you're viewing it in a equity lens, can give particular groups the resources and services they need in a particular society that they are not on equal foot, I mean, not equal footing, but just giving them what they need to be able to be successful in whatever they want to be doing or giving them safe spaces or giving them just agency. Mm -hmm. So as a, being in a public library now, the technology that I'm working, that, that I'm managing it adds a complexity that, you know, I haven't seen in the academic library in the US, where, for example, we do have to place more emphasis on um, translations, 
we have to place emphasis on making sure that um, things are at a level where the low literacy readers can navigate our applications. Now, that isn't to say that academia is completely immune to that, because I've worked on projects where we made tutorials in Chinese about how to use the library, because a US library, um, much, much different structure than what you would have in many international libraries. In the public library, it's a little bit more in your face. Hmm. Interesting. I've, I've just been uh, doing my first internationalization work. So I, I hear you on, on translation and laying the infrastructure for that and how complicated that actually can get to be. Yeah. Um, hmm. I feel like there's so many things like I could ask you. I'm kind of looking at the time and realizing that you probably have another meeting in like 15 minutes. So I don't want to go overboard on all the list of questions. Um, so I think I'll ask you one more, which okay. is you've, you've just talked about management sort of in the institutional sense. And we talked earlier about your some of your extremely extensive community involvement. But I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about community management in library tech type communities and how I imagine that is a somewhat different beast from organizational management. <laughs> it, it's it's a mix. Um, depending on which library um, community you're looking at, you have a variety of different formalizations. And the types of groups that I am involved in, I either help found or they're very loosely structured. So you have this very loosely structured communities and you're coming from an area where organization and structure are the norm. So the one thing about community management is that many people do not realize the amount of work that actually goes into it. it it's sort of like um, people who go into open source and thinking that the only valued or valuable contribution is hard code. Mm -hmm. When in fact, a good amount of work, and I would say, I would say a vast majority of a lot of the open source community that you see, the lot of projects that you see are there today because a lot of people paid the emotional labor cost into making that community sustainable. Mm -hmm. So managing these type of communities, so, so LibTech Women, MASHCAT, you know, involvement into, yeah, LibTech Women, MASHCAT, um, troublesome catalogers and magical metadata fairies, getting into code for lib, getting into write the docs. A lot of that is knowing what type of emotional labor is needed to make the community not only sustainable, but also welcoming and inclusive. And this also gets into what needs to be prioritized, what needs in terms of not only your task level, your daily you know, crud that needs to be done, but what the community overall should be focusing on. 
and what our efforts should be pointed towards. It's sort of like the prioritization list, the enhancement list that you send off into the ether with every <laughs> ILS out there and you're wondering, you know, are they drawing from this black box and picking out random pieces of paper and saying, oh, we'll do this enhancement. And it's not the enhancement that is, should be prioritized. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but a good part of community engagement and management goes into um, spending that invisible labor and invisible effort into determining where the community should go next and if and how that would benefit the community how growing the community in that particular aspect would um, meet certain goals so yeah <laughs> it's a lot of work and uh i i saw this conversation with critlib the other the other month where oh, yeah. one of the people saying you know there's been a call to me formal community out of this mm -hmm. and I saw that on Twitter and I tweeted out well <laughs> there's going to be a lot of work mm -hmm. so um, my advice if you're thinking about oh hey I want to create a community uh, or librarian related community or something community related my recommendation is do not go it alone because it is you will burn yourself out faster if you go out alone than if you get a core group of people who are on the same page or on similar pages about needing to have a group in existence. Now, you don't need to be on the same page about um, everything. It's good to have differing opinions and differing viewpoints because that, if you handle it in a constructive way, that could only serve to strengthen the community. Mm -hmm. But if you go it alone, if you try to say, oh, hey, I want to create a community about librarians with cats, because <laughs> I believe this will not only benefit the librarians who have cats, but it also will build a community where people can then gain knowledge about how to take care of their cats or what cats they, sh they should have or dealing with particular issues about cat ownership like medication passing of a particular um, cat or introducing different cats from different households. So your views of cat rearing might differ from <laughs> views of cat rearing from everything else. And so having different viewpoints and having that core group of people that you can bounce stuff off of and then do small steps. You know, Twitter chats, great. Um, maybe a month, yeah, monthly IRC chat or a monthly e-forum with Google Groups. You know, just small stuff that, you know, you take a moderator, that will be a few hours of that particular person's time, advertise it, that's how you slowly build a base. And then you get to that critical mass where you can start doing awesome stuff. And that's what happened with MASHCAT round two. Um, they had, they built up a base through just small chats and then you're getting to webinars and then boom, on conference. Yeah, I recall that, that was really interesting because MASHCAT had had like a 2012 get together and then sort of yes. 
nothing for a while and then everyone was like we should totally have one and then there was one in in 2016 yes yes Um, it was really cool watching that coalesce yes it was it was one of those conversations that sadly happens too often in the librarian world which is the false dichotomy between library technologists and catalogers and metadata workers Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of organizational structures have these people separated from each other Mm -hmm. and so that has informed a lot of thinking about um, how these should be approached how data work should be approached within librarianship and i came from a what was at the time a non-traditional technical services background which was essentially my first post mls job was coding for cataloging so Mm -hmm. i was a cataloger and a coder so i had to crosswalk between those two worlds on a daily basis and so seeing MASHCAT in 2012, I was really excited to see that in the UK. But the thing is, is with communities and with efforts, sometimes things lay dormant for a long while. And don't be discouraged about that. Um, if your initial effort to create a community falls flat, well, you either let it simmer for a while, maybe it wasn't the right time, or maybe you didn't have the right mix of people because you thought you had a core group of people and and quite honestly, they may have not had the time and effort to put in the work needed to create that community. Or what usually happens, it, trans- it transforms into a particular, into something different, either completely different goes off to a different tangent, or it just lays dormant. And then in 2014, 2015, you have someone who might be a, pro- a prolific Twitterer, cataloger, metadata, and uh, library technologist person seeing this conversation about the false dichotomy between metadata and coding all over again for the nth time. And people are trying to figure out, well, what can we do for in terms of events? And then having this information out there, this person might put in a link and saying, hey, this happened in 2012. Do we want to resurrect it? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, it always amazes me that they are so siloed because from where I sit in my, you know, weird position outside of everything, there's just such a natural allegiance, right? When I teach coding classes, it's mostly catalogers because coding arises so naturally from cataloging workflows and people see ways that they would like their robot servants to streamline this process um, or error check it or what have you and and it they seem so innately connected to me I'm always baffled by the fact that they're not necessarily so and yeah part of it is legacy another part of it is just managers not getting it through their heads that these two are related and actually are secrets our secret siblings. So another thing, another role as a manager on my end is to see the hidden connections. I am all about this uh, sneaky braiding together of the world. Um, and on that note, where Becky is secretly and silently taking to get, uh, taking over the world for its own good, um, I, I will 
call the end of this episode. Uh, we've, we've had a lovely chat, but everyone in the world has meetings to go to, I am sure. So thank you, Becky, for being on air with us. Um, if anyone wants to catch up with Becky or her work on the Twitters or what have you, uh, there's links on the uh, episode page at openparen.club. So you can all follow Becky if for some bizarre reason you are not already doing that. <laughs> and thanks for listening. Thank you, Andromeda.